0: Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15 this morning. Um, Pastor Jason and his family are, are gone this weekend, and um, and so we're not going to be in Acts today. We're going to be in Luke 15 looking at the parable of the prodigal son, and that's uh, 874 if you're using a pew Bible. Um, so this parable um, that, that Jesus tells here... Uh, it focuses, obviously, the, the title gives it away. The, the, the primary focus here is, is obviously the, the, prodigal, the prodigal son. And, um, but when you really kind of break it down and look at it, you realize that it's more about the father in a lot of ways. And, and in his characteristics and his attributes and how he treats both of his sons, really. Not even just the one that left. And... Um, and so looking at his reactions is, is just as critical a thing. And I think that's really just one of the big things that Jesus wants us to get out of the story. So we're going we're gonna to look at this, this parable. We're going to see that there's a lot of takeaways. This is, a, this is a parable that just opens up just so many discussions and so many things that you can, that you can take out of it um, about God and also— just causing us to look at, at ourselves and kind of, kind of our, just us in the midst of, of that too. And so, um, and I really think we do need to understand those things equally, um, understand God and understand ourselves in the midst of that um, so that we can live um, to the best of our ability for, for God in that. And so, the way Jesus tells um, this parable um, is unique to pretty much just about any other parable that you can find um, in most other uh, stories that Jesus tells. He kind of drops in and out um, to, to get important points across. Um, he'll just kind of do like a, a quick little kind of anecdotal story and, and kind of wrap it up quick and go back to teaching or maybe tell another little anecdotal kind of parable story in that way. But this one... Um, it's kind of a more fully realized story. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's longer, and there's more characters involved in it. And, um, and so I think that's why you end up getting so many, so many points across. And, and he tells it in a story mode sort of way that, that is, is easy for us. It's easy for us to kind of um, wrap around Um it's, 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 it's a story of a father and his two sons, and we can understand that, and we can, we can get into that. So if you just kind of follow along, it starts in, in verse 11, and just kind of follow on, and we're just going to kind of walk through it. I'm not going to read it so much as we'll just kind of walk through the story. So Jesus, he begins this story with an act of rebellion. Um, the younger son doesn't want to wait around for his father's inheritance, he uh, he wants it now, uh, with the plan of going off and doing as he pleases. That's that's the plan. Uh, th- this type of action, you know, in, in Jesus in Jesus presenting this son like that would have would have been huge. This is the equivalent of that son saying, "I kind of wish you were dead now, Dad, so that I could because I want I want what I want the inheritance." So it's it's that's. It's pretty harsh when you think about it that way, but that's really what he's doing, saying, you know, I wish you were dead. This would have been a crazy ask for the son to do while his dad was still alive. Um, And when you read on, uh, you see in verse 12 that he ends up giving his son half the property. Once again, that wouldn't have been typical on the father's side of that, because this wasn't the oldest son. And typically, in this culture, the oldest son— uh, would have gotten twice as much as the younger sibling. It, it wouldn't have been this halfsies sort of thing. Uh, he would have been the one who still got an inheritance, but but a smaller amount than the older son. And yet, we see here that Jesus points out that he gives his son half. And then continuing on, we see that within a few days, um, the son takes off and he goes to the far country. and Just wherever that would be. Um, and you can just kind of assume from this um, that apparently what the son got was mostly money, and, and more so than maybe property or, or bigger assets than that, that he was able to just take off. So he got the money, he's gone, um, took off to the far country, and the verse goes on to say that he squandered it on reckless living. Uh, Jesus, you know, obviously doesn't spend a whole lot of time on what reckless living means. He, Jesus knows that we're able to fill in the blanks fairly easily on, on what all that can, mean without getting into the nitty gritty. But as typically happens in these sort of, in these sort of scenarios, the the party, so to speak, ends, and uh, the son, he used up all his inheritance. But his troubles don't end there. Uh, Jesus points out that a famine strikes the land that he is in. And so he's now poor, a destitute outsider because he's not this isn't even a land he's from, and the land's drying up. And so the son at this point though still doesn't this still doesn't cause him to run home. He uh, he ends up hiring himself out to feed pigs. This is another crucial point in this story. When you think about the audience Jesus is telling this to, um, swine, pigs, in the Jewish culture, were an unclean animal. You had, you had nothing to do with pigs. And, um, and so his, his working for, his employment at a pig farm would have been degrading, really, to any self-respecting Israelite. And so it would have just, Jesus would have just been able to pile that on just to get them to see that he's not only destitute, but he's doing this degrading job, you know, based on how their culture would be. And he deepens the degradation um, by having the son get to a point where he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs are eating. Like that he's, he's that far just destitute out that he 's kind of jealous of the pigs and so it's it, you know just so Jesus has set, painted this complete picture of this son and and this scenario that he 's in but we have the the, the the turn in the story that we have here in, in verse 17 um, we have the the epiphany moment with the prodigal son and um, This is the beginning of of the turning point for the son realizing that his father's servants live better than he is right now. That being a servant for his dad is way better than being a a hired hand in a field, starving in a foreign land, you know, all those things. And um, so he's ready to—he's ready to— to go home and and confess his wrongs um, to his father while also knowing that he's not, he's not worthy to be his father's son anymore. He's not worthy to be a part of his father's household, which is why he's thinking like, I could just go be a servant. Uh, You know, I know I'd be living better even as a servant for my dad than I am, than I am right now. And so he heads home. And this is where, the father comes back into the story and the father sees his son, uh, Jesus states, while he's still a long way off. And the father feels compassion and he ran. He ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him is what it says in verse 20. And, and, and one, one author when I was kind of digging through these things, pointed out that, that he does not send a servant to get his son. He doesn't say, go get my son, that, that he's going. And he doesn't holler. He doesn't holler, I'm over here, you know, or anything like that from a distance and, and, and command someone. But he goes himself, that he's running out. He's going to his son in that way. Um, this is the father's overwhelming compassion he has for his son returning home that that it isn't just uh like oh there he is yeah you know but that he is like chasing after him so excited that his lost son is home that's that's what he cared about that um he was lost and now he's back he's found so the son the prodigal son follows through with his confession he he had his script ready even though his his father's running after him that that he still confessed to his dad and his, his remorsefulness, his unworthiness of his father's love. The father doesn't even seem uh, to have a care of the son's failings um, at this moment though. And, and what, the, what, what the father does in this story is he asks for the best robe, he asks for a ring, and he asks for shoes. So these are three more things that that to us just mean like oh he's you know he's giving things to his son again. But again, the, when you put yourself in the audience as as one of the Jews, these would have been three more significant things. The robe would have been significant um, just because it maybe would have conjured, and maybe even for you, you know, just by reading the Old Testament enough, that it would have maybe conjured an image of of Joseph being given the, the the new robe from his father in that way as like like a favored son in that sense, um, that this clean robe in that way. And then Joseph, even later on in the story, when he's raised up by Pharaoh, is given a robe too. It says in that story too. And so they would have maybe had these images of, of a robe meaning this kind of authority that, that they would have again uh, and being, and being um, presentable again within that authority. And so then you have the ring, which the ring, that would have been the whole purpose of a ring of signifying authority. That would have been another cultural thing um, that would have been in many cultures, not even just the Jewish culture of, of, of a ring signifying an authority figure. Um, and again, you could point back to Mordecai in, in, um, in the book of Esther and how he was given a ring by the king for his help in saving the people with Esther. Um, but like I said, it's just kind of that classic symbol of wealth and status. And then you have the shoes. Um, that really just means he didn't have any when he came home. He was shoeless. Uh, you know, he's, he's coming down barefoot. Um, you know, he, he lost everything. So the assumption is that he's, you know, he's living a beggar's life, that he's just destitute to the point of, of just bloodied, dirty, barefoot feet. And um, again, just the significance of, of servants often just didn't wear shoes. They were uh, uh, a commodity that you had to have extra, extra money to afford. And, and so the shoes showed really that the father was not wanting to treat this son as a servant, but was giving him shoes for his feet, treating him as a son again. So then the father, if you look at the story, he brings the fattened calf. They kill it um, to celebrate. And um, again, just a bigger picture of just so excited of his son's return that he wants to have the best party with the best food possible um, and and verse 24 really really sums up where the father's at that my son was dead and is alive again and so that's cause for a big shindig you know we're going to we're going to party it up that my son is home so we have the father here he uses that term my son was dead and it really points us back to seeing the beginning of the story where that is kind of how the son was willing for it to be, that, that I wish you were dead sort of way, like this splitting off the complete breaking part of the family in that way um, and going and doing what he chooses. Um, and so this son, on the, fa- the father, the way he's looking at it too now is that he's not treating his son as dead either. So verse 25 kind of has the next shift in the story um, it transitions us to the to the elder son's point of view, the older son's point of view on this whole thing. Um, the rest of the of this story, really, from this point, um, becomes his story and his relationship with his um, with his father. Jesus has in his in the story here the son coming in from the field. Um, which is a character choice that Jesus purposefully put there, of course, um, to set the tone for who this son was, that he was the hardworking son, the son who was there, he was out working, doing what his dad wanted, that, that, that character choice was Jesus in his wisdom, just making sure you saw that this son was there, he was dedicated, he was responsible, um. Just set the tone for who this son's going to be in the story. So the elder son, he sees what's going on and it states that he's disgusted and he's angry. He refuses to even go into the house because of how absolutely disgusted he is at what his father is doing in this point. And and of course... You know when you look at this, and, and, and again, just when you look at the different Bible scholars who, who've broke this up, you know it's really um, Jesus is mirroring the Pharisees and the scribes who are also in this crowd listening, that at the beginning of this chapter, they were drawn in to hear what Jesus was saying, and the Pharisees and the scribes were angry that Jesus would be dining and talking with sinners, and they were disgusted and angry. And so Jesus is really he's kind of he's, show, he's kind of pointing out their attributes within this older son, this, this idea of how could you be with these people? They're, they're unclean, they're despicable, you know, they're less thins um, in that way. And so back to the parable, though here the father, he comes out to see why the elder son isn't coming in. And at, at this point, the eldest son just completely releases his annoyance. Um, his annoyance upon his, his dad on, on how, he's, how he's seeing everything that's, that's going on here. And what, what is interesting in, in this story is that after he says he hasn't gotten anything, close to this sort of party for himself, he goes into how he feels about his brother and his, his absolute disgust that there's this celebration for this loser who squandered his entire inheritance, probably even more than he would have gotten, like we stated, and was living in just absolute debauchery. Just couldn't handle it. And so the father responds in a in a simple but profound way. He tells his older son that he never had to earn his his father's inheritance or his father's affections. It it was always right there. That his complaining is is silly, it's 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 needless. Um, as as nothing's changed, that the father's joy over his his lost son returning, with with this attitude of, of repentance and remorsefulness, um, it 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 trumps anything that the father could hold over hold over that son. And and the father, while saying that, simultaneously uses how he responds to reaffirm. His love for the elder brother. He never stopped loving the eldest brother. That's what the father's trying to point out here. I never stopped loving you, and it even reminds how he was always with him. They were always together, and how great that was—that they didn't have to have, and that there wasn't this separation. That we were able to always be together in that way. And so this is this is this is something I, I read this week, and I thought this was a uh, a good way to put it that. He said the deepest void in the elder son's heart was that this was not precious to him. Being with the father every night for supper and running the estate together was not a joy to him. It seems that perhaps the elder son really loved what the prodigal brother used to love, but didn't have the guts to leave. You know, that's, that's one way you look at this, that his disgust was partially out of Jealousy is 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 what you could see here in in some ways and and that Jesus, like we said, was using this this older brother um, as a picture of, of God's people who are devoted to him. And and when we see the Pharisees grumbling and the older sons grumbling at the end of the parable, you know, both of them are doing so. Over this distaste, distaste of of Jesus hanging around and eating with sinners. So then the story, like I said, we we have a full story, we see it all. But at the same time, the story does kind of end a little bit, a little bit abrupt. Um, it doesn't maybe have a complete tying of loose ends and the the really long sort of cinematic ending where you have you know, tying up of loose ends of everyone and the pullback with the camera and the credits come. You know, it's, it doesn't have all of that maybe, but we still have a full story, but it does end a little abruptly in that way. But there is a a, a timelessness, you know, at, at obviously at the core of this, par- core of this, this parable. And, and even when you set aside that maybe you don't exact, when when you read through it, you don't know about the robe or the ring or, or the shoes or or, you know, all those things, that we, again, like I said, we can all understand a story of a man and his two sons. We, we see the truth that is, that is brought up um, many times in the Bible that we're all under sin. You know, the, Bi- the Bible points that out in many different places. Paul, in Romans 3, says... For we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. This is uh, a truth that should always sting us a bit, uh, even as it reminds us that we, we aren't righteous. We, we do need to remain re- repentant in that way. Um, many Christians... Um, or those, you know, attempting to live live out their Christian faith, um, they strive to work hard, just like the elder son. And yet, Paul goes on to say in Romans three that by work of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, that we can't work ourselves to the reward. You know, that's, that's pointed out that Jesus is getting that across in this parable, and then Paul just says it flatly right here in, in the letter to the Romans. And the elder son ends up becoming bitter toward his father's reaction to this return of the younger son. And that is something that we can all battle when we see God sometimes save a certain person that that we have to remember that all of us are dependent on God's grace and that all good things come from him. We need to remind ourselves um, and be thankful that we were already able to know God for a longer time, that we were able to have uh, a, a, a more longer and, and maybe it's in some ways a deeper relationship with God for that longer time, and, and to be thankful that we had that. And, and then, on top of that, be rejoicing when anyone comes into the fold in that way. And this all points to um, what, what Peter says in 2 Peter of, of this idea of, of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that we may be strengthened for the time that we still have here, that we still have here on earth, um, and be pursuing others for, for God's kingdom, pursuing others for his kingdom. Every, um, every moment those not in Christ have is God showing his, his patience and, so that they may have time to repent to see God and, 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 and Jesus. So we must pray um, that God uses us um, to be an aid in that pursuit, that we are instruments um, instruments, and, and, and vessels used by God and to not be barriers against those seeing, um, seeing God in those ways. And so now as we prepare to come to um, the table here and celebrate communion, and the worship team can come up and prepare to use for that. I hope that you, you think of this table, the communion table, as, as a place that's a place equally of repentance and celebration, that believers come to this table not because we did enough to be worthy and so now can come, but that God ran toward us and embraced us and brought us into his, into his house through the sacrifice of, of his son, Jesus. And that's, that's, that's what makes us worthy to come to this table, which is why that's what we celebrate this table, is, is Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And so I now ask the elders who are helping with, with communion, to come up and help us with that as as we um, prepare to take the bread and cup together.
1: As we um, prepare for communion today, uh, please take note of the invitations in your bulletin and it's up on the screen. Uh, we have open communion here at richland and uh, but we we ask that you would live under that invitation and uh, as you come uh, the elders will dismiss you to come forward to take the elements from the trays there's only need to take one cup they are grouped together Um, if you're not comfortable with with having communion that's fine you can simply walk through or remain seated Uh, those who are probably unable to to come forward to get their communion elements uh, the elders will bring them to you as well so and there is also a tray up on the in the boundaries as well hold those as you take those and uh, we'll share in communion together thank you
2: Brown. They lift him up. Oh, see the spot.
1: Comes from the book of Luke in chapter 23. And he, Jesus, took the bread, and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which has been given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. So take and eat. And likewise Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. Our benediction today comes to us from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming.